Good evening. If you would, give me one second, this wire. There we go. If you would, be turning in your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah. We'll be camping out there for most of the evening, with jumping to some other passages throughout the night. <clears throat> First of all, I'd like to say it's very good to see everybody out tonight. Um, we've ha- had a handful of visitors. Um, it's good to have you here. Um, good to have everybody here. It's been a wet sort of day. Um, but we're happy that we're here to study together, to encourage each other, to sing songs of praises. Tonight I want to look at the life of Nehemiah and a couple um, other examples and try to apply some principles to our lives about how we can be more peaceful with others. Our scripture reading, one of the verses in the scripture reading was, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. That was the idea of the sermon about eight months ago, forgot about it for about four months, remembered it, wrote it down, and that's how this all started. The world wants peace. The world is in a constant, I guess, grapple and battle to find peace and to have peace both you know, globally, nationally, with each other, in relationships, and groups, and businesses. I googled, in preparation for this, how to find peace. The top result was like top 10 ways to find peace, you know, self-help stuff. The first idea that the world wants us to do is focus on what you can control. The second is get back to nature. I like that one. That one's not too bad. The third is be true to yourselves. Now, we know as Christians how dangerous that can be when you think that um, you being yourself is the best you can be, when we know that... um, being ourselves is actually one of the worst things we can be. We are completely full of sin with our God. The fourth thing is exercising and having a good diet. There's probably some merit to that. The fourth is, not fourth, fifth is med- meditation. Depending on what you're meditating on. And the last um, one here is to avoid trying to change others. I thought that was really interesting because as Christians... That's part of our job, to first change ourselves, become one with God, but then to go out into the world and to teach others. So that's what the world thinks we should be doing to obtain peace, primarily peace within ourselves and then you know, peace around us. How does a Christian find peace? What do we do to find peace? In Psalm uh, 4, verse 8, it says, In peace I'll both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Our peace comes from God. And we'll see this throughout the book of Nehemiah, how he relies on God, how he um, looks to God in times of trouble, how he follows God's commandments, does God's will, and then creates an atmosphere of the peop- within the people of following God as well. So the first attribute of Nehemiah that really jumps out at me is prayer. Nehemiah is a man of prayer. And he's famous for um, a couple prayers, um, firstly in chapter 1 and then in chapter 2, where we don't even know what he prayed about. We, uh, when he's before the king, he says, I pray to the God of heaven. There's a handful of other one-sentence prayers that we'll look at here in just a second. But ch- in chapter 1, <clears throat> let's start in verse 5. This is after the news um, was brought to him about Jerusalem and the dilapidated state that the city was in. In verse 5 it says, And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, 
you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. Please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open, that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you, and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you are cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Now these are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy this sight in the sight of this man. For I was the king's cupbearer. Nehemiah just received terrible news. The city of his ancestors, where his ancestors were buried, the city's in, in ruins. That wall is uh, broken down, the gates are burned with fire. The first thing he does is go to God. And this is a, uh, a prayer we see of repentance and a call for help. And this is something that we'll see quite a bit in Nehemiah. The call for help and the, and the repentance of the people. It's, all, it's always struck, jumped out at me that Nehemiah, somebody who you know, is in this foreign land, lumps himself together with the people you know, who have sinned. I have sinned. My fathers have sinned. And it shows a great humility on, on Nehemiah's part. We are to be very humble when we come into the presence of God in prayer. <clears throat> the next prayer is in chapter 2, verse 4. And again, it's the prayer that we don't know what he said. Verse 4 said, Then the king said to me, What do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. That's something we should do more. In snap moments, we should ask God for help. We should praise God for what he does for us. We should thank him for what he does for us. I know in my life, it's very easy to get caught up with uh, <clears throat> in all the busy things that we're doing. My work is a very fast-paced job, and I don't get a time to sit or think. But we should take those 5, 10 seconds, 15, 20 seconds to pray to God, to thank him for the day he's given us, to ask him for strength. The next prayer of Nehemiah is a bit, is a different one. It's a prayer for judgment. In chapter 4, starting in verse 4. Hear, O God, for we, for we are despised. Turn their approach on their own heads and give them as plunder to the land of captivity. Do not cover their iniquity and do not let their sin be blotted out from before you. For they have provoked you to anger before the builders. This is after they've started building the wall and Sanballat and Tobiah there, you know, starting this opposition against Nehemiah and the people building the wall. And Nehemiah prays to God and asks for their sins to be judged. And as Christians, we can often get a little nervous about that, and rightfully so. It's not something we should do lightly. Um, but sometimes we do need to, you know, ask God for judgment. God is a God of grace and mercy, but he is also a God of justice. Often I think about the, the direction that this country is going in and wonder if we should be praying for um, judgment so that we can um, hopefully turn some hearts around. The next prayer is in chapter 6. That's not a 1, that's a 9. I can't read my handwriting. Chapter 6, verse 9. 
Again, this is while Sanballat and Tobiah are, you know, threatening the children of Israel. Verse 9 says, They all were trying to make us afraid, saying, Their hands will be weakened in the work and will not be done. Now, therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. This is a call from Nehemiah for himself specifically to be strengthened. We all need God to strengthen us in times of adversity and in times of trouble. Finally, the last prayer that we'll look at is in chapter 9. It's a very lengthy prayer, so we won't read the whole thing. But there's three attributes of this prayer that I want to bring out that we can incorporate into our own prayers. And one that we do here regularly. The first attribute is praise. And the first, I guess, uh, verses 5 through 15 are essentially uh, primarily praise. But we'll zone in on verse 6. You alone are, are Lord. You have made heaven. Heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and everything on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve them all. <clears throat> the host of heaven worships you. This is, you know, praise to God. This is um, the most, you know, rich, loud praise that the children of Israel are given to God because at this point they're uh, on the up. They're, you know, their, pr- their prayers earlier have been answered and they're, you know, looking to God who has strengthened them and has been with them through this course and now they're praising God. The next attribute is, again, confession, but also repentance. Turn over to verse 26. They say, Nevertheless, they were disobedient, speaking about the children of Israel of old, and rebelled against you. They cast their law, your law behind their backs, and killed your prophets who testified against them. You turned them to yourself, and they worked great provocations. This is something that is essential in our prayer life, is to confess our sins and to repent of our sins to God. The last um, section of this prayer is, we'll look at is in verse 36. And this is about obedience. Confessing and, uh, and pledging our obedience to God in prayer is very important because you're talking directly to God. This is a conversation that we're having with God and we should tell him and pledge our obedience to him. Here we are, your servants today, in the land that you gave to our fathers to eat its fruit and its bounty. Here we are, servants in it. Here they are pledging their servitude to God, something that the children of Israel had done many times in the past and had broken many times as well. But it's something that we still have to continue, and the children of Israel realize they had to continue to do every time, is to pledge their allegiance to God. So how does this all tie into living at peace with one another or having a peaceful life? The world um, had all these ideas of how to be peaceful, um, I think as a Christian, prayer is one of the most important parts of having a peaceful life, both with ourselves, peace with God, and then peace with others. For me, I know prayer can be just a de-stressor. It's a time where we can talk to our maker, our creator, and just let everything out. We can't always do that in our day-to-day life, but God is always there. Men will fail us. Men will not always be there for us, but God always is. And that's a great comfort. It's very peaceful to know that God will always be there for us through prayer. It gives us strength. Let's look at, uh, continue looking at Nehemiah. Let's go back to chapter 2 in verse 19. <clears throat> but when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Gisham the Arab heard of it, they laughed at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? So I answered them and said to them, the God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, we his servants will arise and build. But you have no inheritance, 
heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. Also in chapter 4, verse 14. Nehemiah speaking to the elders, and I looked and arose and said to the nobles and the leaders and the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. We can see the effect that prayer has in Nehemiah's life. It gives him great courage to be able to be the leader that we know Nehemiah is. That's one of Nehemiah's defining characteristics is leadership. He gets there through prayer for asking God for strength, for asking God for help, and then he's able to help others through that. The next point is something um, that we've talked about, what we talk about a lot as Christians. We've had multiple lessons that have had points on this topic in the past. Um, the one thing Nehemiah does early on is honor the king. And that's something that um, I think as Americans we can get very, um, very bad at sometimes. Let's look at what Nehemiah does in the first couple verses of chapter 2. <clears throat> It came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had never been sad in his presence before. Therefore the king said to me, Why is your face sad, since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid, and said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tomb, lie waste and its gates are burned with fire? And the king said to me, What do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah and to the city of my father's tombs so that I may rebuild it. It goes further to say he, the king asked how long he'll be gone. You might have let him know. We read later that Nehemiah completed the task and the time that he told him it would be completed and then returned to the king because he was the king's cupbearer. He had a job to be doing. But the idea in general that Nehemiah honored the king. We read, um, actually in Romans chapter 13, right after the base passage that we started here, um, not Nehemiah, Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. This was written in the time of Nero, a very cruel leader, a very cruel ruler um, who murdered many Christians. And here's Paul telling people living in Rome, in Nero's backyard, honor him. Honor the man who's killing your brethren. That's a powerful statement. And as Americans, of course, you know, land of the free, liberty, all that good stuff. I love America. It's great. Um, Because we're able to do this. We're able to come together without fear. Um, But sometimes we can let those freedoms get too far. Uh, Freedom of speech is is great. Uh, But when we use that speech to tear down elected officials, other people in power, whether it's the president, whether it's the mayor of Murfreesboro, that's not acceptable as Christians. Um, one of the easiest places to do this, and one place I see it all, uh, all the time, is on Facebook by Christians and non-Christians alike. And it doesn't matter what side, uh, if you're left or right, Republican, Democrat. Um, as Christians, we're called to respect the authority, respect 
um, the official. And I see so many Christians every day not doing that. Um, and it's shameful. Shame on us when we make snide jokes about um, the leaders or the president, whatever it might be. Shame on us. A few more verses uh, along this point. Uh, let's see. First Peter chapter 2. First Peter 2 verse 17. Peter says, Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. It's pretty simple. We do the first handful of commandments really easily. Generally, we're very, we honor people that we don't know. We come into contact at Walmart. We're, we're nice people. We don't yell at people in Walmart. We love the brotherhood. We're a very close-knit group here at Northfield. We love each other. We fear God. But do we honor the king? We don't have a king in America, but do we, do we honor the leader? Sometimes that answer is no. Paul said in Romans 13, in verse 2, it's, if, when we do this, when we don't honor the king, it's we're resisting the ordinance of God. That hurts. That should hurt. Let's look at the Old Testament. Psalm uh, 2. <clears throat> we can take comfort in who whatever or whoever our leader is, whether we agree, disagree, whether they're a tyrant, whether they're weak. We can take comfort in that God is in control no matter what. That's why we can honor the, the leader and why we should honor the leader because God is in control ultimately. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all those who put their trust in him. So we see that and we know this from history. Leaders, they're put there by God, but that doesn't make them good. Nebuchadnezzar was put there by God to punish his people. That doesn't make Nebuchadnezzar good. We know how, what, what a uh, horrible individual Nebuchadnezzar was, how, how cruel he was to the people he took captive. Um, and there's countless others we could reference as well. And when we look here in America, our leader, whether good or bad or indifferent... God put him there. And that's something we have to respect and understand. <clears throat> Psalm 2, um, I guess the, the Cliff Notes version in my mind, how I read it, is that the rulers will plan. They'll always, you know, have a plan of what they're going to do. God looks at it. He laughs because he knows what's really going to happen. We know what's going to happen. God reigns. God will reign ultimately. He does reign ultimately. We should obey. That's the meat and potatoes of uh, Psalm 2. Last passage on this topic is Proverbs 21. It's a well-known passage. Not Psalms, tw Proverbs 21. <clears throat> Verses 1 through 2. 
The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. So these, these two verses, the first one, obviously God puts the rulers in place. Um, their heart is in his hand. Verse 2, everybody's heart is in God's hand. Therefore, we should follow God's word and respect the leader. The third point is to overcome evil with good. That was the last verse in our reading from Romans, was to overcome evil with good. And that's a great way for us to think. We see so much evil in the world, um, whether it be you know, mocking the leadership, um, homosexuality, homosexuality, adultery, all kinds of evil that we see on a day-to-day basis. We should overcome that evil with good. We don't sit on the sidelines and watch it. We overcome that evil. So let's look at what Nehemiah does. Let's turn to Nehemiah chapter 13. There's four things in Nehemiah 13 that the children of Israel have already regressed in. The first one is, is having an impure temple. There are no provisions for the Levites or for the worship. They've defiled the Sabbath, and they've intermarried with the people. So let's look at all four of those real quick. Verses uh, 6 through 9. But during all this, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Then after certain days, I obtained leave from the king. And I came to Jerusalem and discovered the, the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah in preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. And it grieved me bitterly. Therefore, I threw all the household goods of Tobiah out of the room. Then I commanded them to cleanse the rooms. And I brought back into them the articles of the house of God and the grain offering and the frankincense. We see here Nehemiah comes back from you know, going back to the king, doing his job. He gets leave from the king. He comes back to Jerusalem. He's gone for a little while, and it's a mess. The temple is being defiled. The person who was you know, trying to attack them while they were building the wall is now living um, in the city, in the courts of the house of God. That's, a, that's, that's horrendous. But how often do we let something like that happen to us? Not a person, but maybe a thing. Do we let social media, is social media our Eliashib living in the house of God? Next thing, verses 10 through 13, there's no provisions for the Levites. I also realized that the portions for the Levites had not been given to them. For each of the Levites and the singers who did the work had gone back to his field. So I contended with the rulers and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their place. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain and the new wine and the oil to the storehouse. And I appointed the treasures over the storehouse, Shilamiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and the Levites, Padiah, and next to them was Hanan, the son of Zachar, the son of Mataniah, for they were considered faithful, and their task was to distribute to their brethren. So we see, we, we know from reading the old law that there were certain provisions that were to be given to the Levites so that... Um, they could be about their work, which is you know, caring for the house of God, performing uh, the worship. That wasn't happening. Nehemiah set all that up when he left, and they threw it to the wayside when he, while he was gone. So what does he do? He was, he cont- it says that he contended with the rulers. He just didn't you know, sit them all down and have a nice calm conversation with them. He contended with them. I'm sure there might have been some shouting. Contention can tend to do that sometimes. It's not a, you know, a happy conversation that he was having. You could argue it's not a peaceful conversation, but we're talking about peace. How can we contend with somebody but also have peace? 
Well, we know that when there is sin in a group, when there is sin in the church, that has to be addressed. And depending on the severity and the situation, it's not always going to be a peaceful resolution. But that sin has to be eradicated. Um, that way we can have peace. If we let that sin fester, then the, the, the fake peace that we think we have will disappear. Verses 15 through 22. In those days I saw the people in Judah treading the wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sheaves and loading donkeys with wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of burdens which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them about the day on which they were selling provisions. Men of Tyre dwelt there also who brought in fish, all kinds of goods, and sold them on the Sabbath to the children of Judah and in Jerusalem. Then I contended with the nobles of Judah and said to them, What evil thing is this that you do, by which you profane the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do thus? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Yet you bring added wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. It's one of the simplest laws that God gave the children of Israel. Take a day off. Take a day off and honor me. Sounds pretty easy to me. I would love that. Um, but the children of Israel, they didn't do that. They constantly, throughout their history, profaned the Sabbath. Nehemiah, again, contending with the nobles, was telling them their history. This is why we're here. This is why we're in captivity for 70 years. Is because you profaned God's word and God's Sabbath. Why are we doing it again? The, lastly, let's look at verses 23 through 30. In those days, I also saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of, of Ashdod and could not speak the language of Judah, but spoke according to the language of one or the other people. So I contended with them and cursed them, struck some of them, and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God, saying, You shall not give your daughters as wives to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons or yourselves. Do not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things. Yet many nations... Yet among many nations there was no king like him who was beloved of his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, pagan women caused even him to sin. Should we then hear of your doing all this great evil, transgressing against our God and marrying pagan women? One, another relative, seemingly simple command that God gave the children of Israel was to not intermarry with the nations around them. And yet here again, we see them doing the same thing as their ancestors. And Nehemiah just didn't contend with them. He cursed them, struck them, and pulled out their hair. That makes a statement. Not peaceful, but it leads to peace. Because we're pulling this in, almost literally in this case, away from the people. Can you imagine if somebody here today was sinning, especially a sin of this magnitude, and... The leaders pulled his hair out, struck him. I don't think that would happen. But we need to be able to take and know to take drastic measures sometimes when there is sin in our uh, group. Let's make some practical applications of, uh, about overcoming evil with good from the New Testament. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16. <clears throat> Do you not know that you are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. 
The children of Israel profaned the physical temple in Jerusalem many times. It was purified many times and they defiled it again. We, the church, are the temple of God. And he says here, if we defile this temple, God will destroy us. Nehemiah's not going to come and pull our hair out and contend with us. God's going to deal with us himself. That's not something we want to happen because that's eternal. We don't want to face that eternal judgment. If we see sin in the, in the temple, we need to get it out. Let's look at Hebrews 10. And going along with the idea of uh, making provisions for worship, or provisions for the Levites in Nehemiah's case. Verse 24 of Hebrews 10. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. This is a very well-known passage, not forsaking the assembly, the idea of making provisions, making time you know, to be here. This is the best thing we can be doing right now, is to you know, be worshiping our God, encouraging each other. We need to be making time for that. Along the same lines, let's turn to Romans chapter 13. And let's start in verse 11. Romans 13, verse 11. And do this, knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore let us cast off the works of darkness and let, them be put, and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. But put on the... But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Where the children of Israel, they were not making provisions for the Levites or for the worship that they were supposed to be conducting. We're not supposed to be making provisions for the flesh. We're supposed to be again, making provisions to be here, to be building each other up, to be admonishing each other and singing, praying, and worshiping God. What are some of the distractions? What things... That can we be making provisions for that we, you know, that we kind of shrug off, that have become normal? The first one I'd say is COVID. COVID is one of the easiest things that um, we can make provisions for to weaken ourselves um, by not assembling together, um, by using it as an excuse. Uh, it can often be, we all remember last year how discouraging it was not to be together. That's something that shouldn't happen. We should be together worshiping God. Um, there's so many other distractions besides just um, this that have been around for years and years. You know, um, if your kids are playing sports, do they play sports on Wednesday nights? Uh, what about work? That's a tough pill for me to ask myself because my work can be you know very demanding sometimes. Um, but the but the idea is that what are we making provisions for? We need to be doing everything we can possibly to be here every time we can. We have a gospel meeting coming up in a few, about four, four weeks-ish. Uh, we need to be making plans right now to be here. That's a great time to encourage each other. We need to take advantage of that. The last point, um, mirroring the uh, idea about intermarrying or not intermarrying, is 2 Corinthians um, chapter 6. And of course, we know this passage doesn't just refer to you know, marrying somebody who's an unbeliever, but it's about tying ourselves to something that we shouldn't be tying ourselves to, something of the world that will drag us down and, to, and deplete our faith. 
Let's read verses, starting verse 11. O Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. And in return for the same, I speak as to, to, as to children, you also be open. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with, un, with an unbeliever? And he goes on making essentially the same uh, point. We cannot be yoking ourselves or tying ourselves to something that's going to be dragging us down. We know the idea of two oxen. If we, if, uh, you know, back in the old days, if we're going to be plowing a field, we want a strong ox and a strong ox, not a strong ox and, um, you know, a dog or a weak ox or anything like that. That's, you're going to have some really weird looking cornrows at that point. Um, are our spiritual cornrows straight, you know? We need to make sure that we're yoking ourselves with each other. We're, we should be um, together plowing the fields. Jesus said the field's ripe for harvest. Um, and it is, still to this day. We need to be out there plowing, getting to the work. And essentially, that's what Nehemiah did. If you look back through Nehemiah, um, Nehemiah was a man of prayer. He was also a man of action. And he overcame evil with good. He got to the work. He looked at the job, and then he did the job. What are we doing? We have a job, and it's not just to be here. It's to be out there, but to be like we are in here, to be strong, to be the lights of the world that God calls us to be. Are we doing that? Are we being the Nehemiah that we need to be? Do we spend time in prayer? It can be, again, a 10-second, thank you, God, for this beautiful day. Thank you for you know, bringing us here all together. Do we abuse the freedoms that we have in this country? Again, that's very easy to do. Do we purge evil from our lives and help each other purge evil from our lives as well? These are all questions that we have to be asking ourselves. Are we getting to the work? And I'll, I'll end with that. Are we getting to the work? There's great work to be doing, and we should all be encouraging each other and helping each other do that. If you're not a Christian, you need to start your work tonight. We don't know when um, the next time will be for you to do that. We could all be gone tonight. God could call us home tonight. Start your work tonight. If you're a Christian and you've stumbled in the past and you're not doing that work, come back to God. Start that work afresh. If there's anything that we can do for you, please come as we stand and sing.